whole resurrection passage. The ladies going to the tomb and seeing the angels dressed in bright white and he's not there, he's risen. Well, I understand that. There was a time, there was a period of time, about 47 days between the rising from the cross, the rising from the grave, rather, and the first public sermon about the resurrection. And so today what we're going to study is the first sermon about the resurrection. In fact, it was the first Christian sermon. And so it's fitting that the first Christian sermon is focused on the resurrection. So if you've turned in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, let's pick up our reading in verse 29, page 910. In fact, I, I misspoke. Let's, let's pick up our reading in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you have crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Gracious Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage? Would you give us grace to hear it? You are calling people to yourself. You are saving them from the wrath their sins deserve. And may we make the cry of our hearts that of the cross of Christ. We believe that he died for us according to the scriptures and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And you are delighted to save all who call. Help us to know this and experience it personally. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, kids, I have a, a question for you. I have a question for the kiddos today. And I want you to tell me if this is true or not. Kiddos, do you guys like it when your parents tell you about the day you were born? Do you like hearing that story? How many of you ask your mom and dad, Mom, Dad, tell me about the day I was born. Do you guys do that? Can I tell you kids about the story of how my oldest son, Peyton, my oldest child was born, the day of his birth? Can I tell you about that? It was in the evening. I don't remember what day of the week it was. My wife could probably tell you that, but it was in the evening. My wife and I were at a friend's house. We were having dinner. My wife noticed that something was wrong. She was past her due date. And so she said, Greg, I think we should go to the hospital. And I said, okay, let's do it. And so we walked into the hospital. And the nurse at the hospital said, well, let's see if we can hear the baby's heartbeat. And so she hooked up a piece of equipment that would help her hear the baby's heartbeat. And when she looked at the screen that told her what the baby's heart rate was, she ran out of the room. A few seconds later, a doctor ran into the room with some hospital gowns and threw them at me and said, this baby is going to be born in five minutes, and if you want to see it, put those on. And believe you me, it was five minutes. <laughs> what we learned later was that the baby's heartbeat, Peyton's heartbeat, had dropped down below 40 beats a minute, which is very low. And the doctors and the medical staff realized that this was an emergency. Now there was hope. If we acted fast, we could save Peyton. I say we. I had nothing to do with the children, let me tell you. I put those gowns on and hid behind the curtain with my wife and watched the doctors do their thing. There was great hope, but did the doctors just kind of take their time and go slowly, kind of like you brush your teeth after your parents tell you it's time for bed? Did, did they act like that? No. They acted fast. Now, kids, this is more for your parents. Sometimes, just like when the doctors found out about Peyton's 
low heartbeat. Sometimes truth comes to us with two parts. There's a truth of urgency. A truth that tells us of danger ahead. But also tells us of hope. And with that truth, it commands us to act immediately. Don't delay. Act now. This is the truth of the resurrection. And this is the truth that Peter was trying to bring home to the people who were listening to him that day. They said, don't delay. Act now because this resurrection has a couple of truths in it that you need to be aware of. And as you sit here today, I think you'll find that you have a lot of parallels with the people who were listening to this message for the very first time. So I had you turn to Acts chapter 2. Let me set the scene for you just a little bit. It is the day of Pentecost. You can go back and read in Acts chapter 2 about that day. Pentecost is a, is, a, is a Greek word, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now, Jesus had suffered on the cross. He had risen again on the third day. And for about 40 days after that resurrection, he would appear intermittently to the disciples. Now, there was about 120 people who were meeting in an upper room of a house. They were hiding. They were sort of in secret. But they were so excited. They had seen the risen Lord, and Jesus would come and instruct them. And this went on for 40 days. And Jesus then, in Acts chapter 1, tells the disciples, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit. And they, if you do the math, it turns out they had to wait about one week. So they were without Jesus for about a week. And then here they are, sitting 50 days after the Passover at the Feast of Pentecost. Now let me tell you what Pentecost was. How many of you have read through your Old Testament and you got to the book of Leviticus and you read about all these festivals that the Jewish people were supposed to go to? There was the Feast of Tabernacles. There was the Passover. There was also the Feast of Weeks. And that's what Pentecost was. It's described in Exodus chapter 34, verse 22. It was a harvest festival. The Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, came always at the end of the barley harvest. And hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. I read some estimates that said there were 100,000 people in the city that day. Some that said there were 250,000 people in the city that day. Not sure which one it was. Either way, it's a big crowd. And they are there to celebrate a religious feast. Now, I want you to understand who these people were. These are religious type folks. These are people who celebrate holidays like Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and various other holidays. These are people who want God in their lives and who show up for religious services just like the one you're at today. These are people who want something of God in their lives. And so here they are at a divinely commanded festival, harvest fest, and suddenly, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit 
rushes down. It says there was a great wind, there was a great noise, and the Spirit of God, and apparently it was visible to all the people who were in Jerusalem at the time. It came, and it somehow visibly descended on one house where all the disciples were gathered. About 120 of them there. And it says that when the Spirit gathered there, these people had flaming tongues appear over the tops of their heads. And they began to declare the glory of God in languages they hadn't previously studied. Now because this was a festival, and there were Jewish people from all over the empire who'd come into the city, there were a lot of different languages being spoken that day. And so when these people, these disciples were filled with the Spirit, suddenly they could speak languages they didn't know. And this was marvelous to everybody who was watching. Now, there were some people who ran to the house. They heard the languages, and they did what every, they asked what every last one of you would have asked had you been there that day. You know what they asked? They asked, what in the world is going on here? Some of the people said, wow, God must be doing something. And some of the people said, these people are drunk. Well, Peter hears that. And he says, you know what? I need to explain to you what is happening. He says, these people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. These people aren't drunk. But what you're seeing is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Now, what I want you to know is Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. And that brings us to our next point, Peter's sermon. And I've got three characteristics of the sermon, and then we're going to focus in on just one part of the sermon that he preached. We're not going to go through his entire sermon. But I want you to notice, first and foremost, that Peter's sermon, how he explains this event, this spirit rushing down and so forth, was biblical. It was thoroughly biblical. If you read through there, Peter quotes Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. There are times when he doesn't quote verbatim, but he references other scriptures. Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah 53, 10, 57, 19, and Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. Basically what Peter does is he takes these onlookers on a tour of Old Testament biblical theology. He says, what you're seeing was predicted in the Old Testament. What you're seeing is how Jesus fulfilled that to the letter. And what you're seeing is biblically how God is calling you to himself. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells a parable. There was a rich man in Lazarus. The rich man finds himself in hell. And he asks Abraham, he says, Will you send back a person from the dead to my brothers to tell them not to come to this place? And the punchline of Jesus' parable is this. If they don't believe the Bible, they won't even believe if somebody rises from the dead. Peter took that to heart. 
And yes, he references and testifies that Jesus rose from the dead, but he preaches the Bible. Because that is what truly gives evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Secondly, what Peter does is he focuses on Christ. He focuses on Christ. In fact, if you were to read verses 22 through 39, just like we did, Peter explains how Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited-for Messiah. He's not calling him Jesus Christ. He's not saying that Christ is his last name. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah. And this whole sermon is a development proving to anybody who will come that because Jesus rose from the dead, he is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the long-awaited, anointed one. And then what I want you to see is that Peter's sermon lasts. It's passionate. Peter's sermon is passionate. In fact, right at the very beginning of the sermon, if you'll go back to me, it says in verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. In fact, that word addressed is sort of a tame translation. I can understand why the translators did it this way because both words are basically synonyms. Imagine if they translated it this way. Peter lifted up his voice and lifted up his voice to them. You would say, oh, they're repeating themselves. No, they're two different words. They're just, they just mean the same thing. The word addressed means to shout. It means to proclaim. It means to lift your voice in a loud, announcing passionate way and call out to people. There was a life and death truth here. And Peter wanted his voice to match the sobriety of the moment. In fact, if we go back down to the very end of it in verse 41, he says, I'm sorry, in verse 40, and with many other words, and I'm going to give you my own translation of this, with many such words, Peter solemnly attested and begged them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Peter was a man on fire. He had a truth to convey to these people. And he did so with great passion and intensity. And the people were listening. Now, I'd like us to focus in on one part of Peter's sermon, this sermon that was so biblical and so Christ-focused and so passionate. And I want us to focus on this question, this point that Peter raises. Remember, all these people, all these people are here in the city that day. And they've seen the Spirit rush down. They said, are these people drunk? What's going on here? And Peter says, you're not seeing some random thing. Jesus Christ did this. Jesus sent the Spirit now, again, if all of you were there that day, you would have asked the same question. You would have asked this. How do we know? How do we know that was Jesus? How do we know it wasn't some grand magician trick? Well, Peter is about to answer that question. How do we know? And Peter goes straight to the resurrection. And I'm going to give you his answer in just a few words here. Number one, David said, Peter answers it this way. How do we know that Jesus sent the Spirit? Well, in verse 27, 
he says that David actually predicted that the Christ would rise from the dead. If you go to verse 27, we see that Peter is quoting. Peter is quoting Psalm 16. And he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. David lived a thousand years before Peter preached this sermon. And in those 50 or so days between the resurrection of Christ and Pentecost, Peter and the disciples, with the aid of Jesus, had ransacked the scriptures and had come to understand that the Old Testament said Jesus, the the Christ, the Messiah, would rise. God would not permit him to see corruption. Now David says this, he says, now guys, David wasn't talking about himself. You know why I know that, Peter said? And he, I, I don't know that he did this, but I can imagine him reaching up his finger and pointing right across the way. David's tomb is right over there. In fact, David's tomb had been there for a thousand years. We don't know exactly nowadays where David's tomb is. There's a few guesses. But back then, it was there and had stayed there. Peter says, David has been in that tomb for a thousand years. And up to this point, you thought David was talking about himself, but he wasn't. He was talking about his anointed one. He was talking about the Messiah. And he says, I want you to know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, he is this Messiah. He is this Messiah. He was risen. Now, friends, I want you to hear this. Listen. Peter offers his testimony as proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's all he offers. Think about the things Peter could have offered. Imagine he produced the cloth that they found in the tomb that was wrapped up and sitting by itself. Imagine if he raised that up and said, see, it's empty. He could have done that, right? Or imagine he had Jesus place his nail-pierced hands into a hot wax mold. And he held it up. He could have done that. They had that technology. And he could have held it up and said, see the nail-pierced hands. Imagine this. Imagine Peter would have found one of those soldiers who were bribed to say that they came and stole it. And Peter and the apostles surround that man and they get him to confess that they were lying the whole time. And they have that man stand up and uncover the lie. Could they have done that? Well, of course they could have. But I want you to know, Peter doesn't do any of that. He says, we, we 12. More than enough to stand up in a court of law. We're witnesses. But, just as Jesus said in Luke 16, you're not going to believe that a man rose from the dead, even if he stood in front of you. Believe the scriptures. It says the Messiah will rise. We're here to tell you the Messiah rose, and Jesus is the Messiah. Now Peter is going to go on. And friends, this is a truth that I'm sorry to say 
is greatly ignored in our day and age. But it is central to what we read. And so I would beg your attention to what is to come now. Peter says this, this Jesus was raised from the dead proving that he is the Christ. And now he sits at the right hand of God. And he quotes Psalm 110. Now we're going to go to the next slide because there is an implication of that. Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God and Peter therefore explains a truth that was absolutely terrifying to the people who were listening that day. Psalm 110 says this, that the Messiah who ascends to the right hand of God, Psalm 110, will sit there while God makes that person's enemies a footstool for his feet. In other words, Psalm 110 says this, the Messiah who will rise from the dead, according to Psalm 16, will sit at the right hand of God, and God will exercise vengeance on the enemies of this son. And then Peter says this, you who are standing here today killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Therefore, you are now squarely in the crosshairs of the wrath of God. And these people when they heard that, it says that they were cut to the heart. Peter offers this plea, repent, believe, and identify. When the audience heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. In other words, it, it literally means they were stabbed in the heart. Are you guys following what Peter is saying? The Messiah will rise from the dead. The Messiah will sit at the right hand of God while God exercises vengeance on the Messiah's enemies. You killed the Messiah. Therefore, you are the enemy of God. And those people who heard it that day understood exactly what Peter was saying. And they were cut to the heart. And their next question is this. What shall we do? We're doomed. We're condemned. What shall we do? Peter says this, friends, the forgiveness and grace of God, the mercy of God is so wide and so free and so available to you. He says, repent and believe and identify with Christ. He says, repent, turn from error to truth. You've been in this false system all your lives, Peter says. You've misunderstood what God has commanded. And Jesus is here to set you free. Acknowledge that you played a part in killing the Savior. And beg for his forgiveness. And he will forgive you. Now Peter says something here. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now this has confused many people moving forward here. Does it mean you have to be baptized to receive the forgiveness of sins? Well, let me direct you to some other passages. We're not going to turn there, but I would invite you to write them down. Acts chapter 
3, verse 19, Peter says that salvation is by faith. He just says, believe in the Christ. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, he says that the Gentiles received the Spirit by faith. Or in 1 Peter 1, 5, he says that this salvation has come to you and will be completed by faith. He never mentions baptism. So was Peter confused? Was he contradicting himself? I don't think so. Peter's a very smart man, filled with the Holy Spirit. I think Peter, what Peter is saying here is this. In light of everything else he said. That there is a certain type of faith that doesn't save. And a certain type of faith that does. When you come and you hear a message like this, and you think, oh, that's wonderful. Jesus was crucified and raised, and I'm so glad I have hope. And you leave unchanged, unwilling to publicly identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter would say, that's the type of faith that doesn't save. Jesus himself says that those who deny me before men, I will deny before the angels. But Peter says there's a type of faith that says, I will gladly be publicly identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is evidence of saving faith. Repent and demonstrate that you have the type of faith that truly saves. The type of faith that says, I have Jesus and none else. Jesus is my only hope. And you will be saved. And these people, when they heard it, when they heard this message, many thousands came to know the Lord as their Savior. 3,000. It was quite the scene. Did you know there were no baptistries back then? Where did they find enough water to baptize 3,000 people? Well, I'm here to tell you, they probably used the city fountains. It was all very public. These people realizing their condemnation. We kill Christ. Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will groan. God's forgiveness and mercy is so big and so wide. He will forgive that too. If you repent, turn from those wicked ways, place your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And if that faith has such a profound hold on you, that you say, yes, I am with Jesus, then that is faith, my friend. It saves. It saved them from the wrath to come. And will save you as well. I have two applications here for us today as we close. Number one, I'd like us to remember that the bodily resurrection is a double-edged Friends, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we, apart from Christ, 
are enemies of God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're strangers and aliens and enemies. Jesus rose from the dead and awaits as his Father exercises vengeance on his enemies. Jesus says, the wrath of God abides on those who do not believe. That's a sobering truth. And it ought to strike in our hearts in urgency. Just like that day, the nurse took one look at my baby's heartbeat and ran out of the room with decisive and quick action. Because there was a twofold truth. There was trouble, number one, that number two could be avoided. And that's the second part of this truth. Jesus died for enemies. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for bad people. He died for sinners and extortioners and adulterers. He died for murderers. He died for the very people who hung him on that cross. He held together all the accoutrements that killed him so that he could see through the punishment that we deserve. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here God is pleading with you to accept this double-edged truth. We're goners without Christ. But Christ's salvation is so vast and so free. And he wants to save you. And as Peter exhorted those people, please save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Deliverance is right there for you. Please accept. That's our second application. The bodily resurrection demands an urgent, an urgent response. It demands an urgent response. Friends, I want you to know I racked my brain all week trying to come up with a good illustration to describe urgency. And I've already referenced it before. I will never forget the look on the face of that nurse as she turned to run out of the room. I didn't expect that. Now, this is the sort of urgency that those Jewish people had that day. But I'm also here to tell you, nobody, nobody has ever perished Asking the Savior for mercy. No way. If you've been cut to the heart today, bow your heart at the Savior's feet and do it even right now as I'm talking. God is the mercy of Christ. I don't care what you do. 
he will forgive it. Turn to him. For he rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And he sits at the Father's right hand, thus proving that he is the Messiah indeed. Let's pray. Father, grant us that urgency to come to know Christ today. Grant us that urgency to leave behind our sin, our shame, our guilt, and help us to run to the Savior whose arms are rich in mercy. Help us to run to forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. We are so broken. This world is so broken. May we find wholeness in our Savior who conquered all of that for our good and your good. Now unto him be glory and praise and dominion, both now and forevermore. And all God's people say. Well, in a moment, Nathan is going to come close us in a song. May I remind you that we're going to have some refreshments following that song, and we would love for you to stay in fellowship with us. We're also going to have a kid's egg hunt. A few minutes afterward, we'll call you to order here. That'll be after we see May I urge you, if the spirit of the living God struck your heart today, and you're not sure what to do with that, like I'm, I don't know what to do with that, I'm going to be in the back, and I'd love to talk to you. Pastor Chris will be available. Pastor Dom will be available. Anybody who stood up here and done anything today, you can ask them for help, and they will gladly tell you how you can know today that you are forgiven. Just like Peter told those people. Back. Thank you.